Kia ora and welcome to Cinema in Context, where we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. I'm Sarah Watt. And I'm William Chen. And this month of Cinema in Context, we are joined by a very special guest, Doug Dilliman, who is a filmmaker, film editor, and film critic, and also the husband of Sarah. So welcome, Doug. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to finally be in the same room with you when you're recording instead of uh, listening from across the house. And uh, Doug has often come in and interjected with helpful trivia bits or um, names of actors, so I agree. It's nice to be on the show. (laughs) (laughs) And each month at Cinema in Context, we discuss two films, one current and one retrospective with some connection. It could be the same director, same actor, or similar theme. This month we're discussing Glass, which came out this month, and also The Happening, which came out in 2008, the connection being that they both are written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, and we are going to discuss those qualities in great detail today. <laughs> uh, so Doug, being our guest, would you like to give us a, an overview of Glass? Uh, yes, I would. Following on from the events of uh, 2000's Unbreakable and 2016's Split, David Dunn, played by Bruce Willis, is pursuing uh, the character The Horde, played by James McAvoy, a split personality who's been kidnapping women to sacrifice to one of his personalities. But when both are captured and placed in the same asylum as Elijah Glass, the nemesis from Unbreakable, played by Samuel Jackson, is there a larger, more secret plan afoot? (laughs) All signs point to M. Night Shyamalan, yes. (laughs) Excellent. And The Happening. The Happening came out uh, just over 10 years ago. It is the film that I would say was a big signpost in Imna Shyamalan's career going downhill. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I made a pun there, but I'm not aware of it. Signs. Ah, nice. Mm, Thank mm. you, team. I would love to say that was intentional, but it was not. (laughs) Um, And the story follows um, uh, Elliot and what's his wife's name? Uh, who cares? Who cares? <laughs> too terrible to... Okay, we'll get there. Uh, Marky Mark, so Mark Warburg and Zoe Deschanel. Is it um, Gretchen? It's not no. Gretchen. No. We'll get there. Uh, yeah. Keep going. She has a name. <laughs> and it follows their marital... Um, oh, gosh, could you all even call it issues? And um, <laughs> meanwhile, on the, on the, the great, great stage of a, a happening occurring, an event that causes people to commit suicide... And as they try and flee places with with higher populations, which seems to be where these happenings are occurring, um, they begin to learn the true nature of the happening. There we go. Alma. Alma Moore is yes. Elliot's wife. That's right. Alma. Alma. Which is her only definition in this uh, thing. She doesn't have a career. She doesn't have a uh, thing. She's um, texting some guy named Joey, who in the credits is revealed to be M. Night Shyamalan, but has no lines or appearances on camera. Well, you know, if, if there was ever a sign for a, an issue in a marriage, it's got to be tiramisu. <laughs> so we will be spoiling both of these films. M. Night Shyamalan is known for having a twist. Uh, so be warned. Right. <laughs> yes, we will be spoiling pretty much everything. And we potentially will be spoiling his other films as well. So just be aware that we will be having a, a spoiler-filled discussion. Um, but yeah, let's jump into it. Anyone want to have a, have a place they want to start us off? I, I would like to just say, um, when Glass came out... What I picked up was that certainly critical acclaim was relatively low and that audience acclaim was equally low. And so I went into it disappointed already with low expectations and was really, really pleasantly surprised. And I don't know to what extent that was because I had low expectations 
or whether actually, or I was just in the right mood for it, because you know how that can be sometimes. It's very wordy, isn't it? It tries to get a little bit serious and a bit smart on itself. And I was up for that. And I actually thought it was a thoroughly enjoyable and interesting film all the way through, which is more than I can say for The Happening, which I found to be entirely uninteresting pretty much from the get-go. So there you go. I would agree, but I found the ha- I always find the happening interesting from start to finish yeah. for all the wrong reasons. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I agree, agree with you. I had quite low expectations for Glass, and I had a good time. Mm. I mean, it wasn't a perfect time. Mm. <laughs> I have to say, Imran Shyamalan's explanation of his cameo was cringe moment. I assume, can, but, can we, but it, it ties into it ties into the themes, right, of redemption and you know change because um, talk I, about talk about who, what his cameo was in this instance. Was he in a he, so he, in Unbreakable? Um, he is caught in line by David Dunn as uh, because we've recently rewatched Unbreakable, mm. and he's caught by David Dunn in line who believes he has a firearm, and uh, seventeen eighteen years later he's in David Dunn's private security store and goes in and um, is buying something for his work and uh, goes into a long, clunky uh, exposition-driven monologue explaining how he recognizes David Dunn as the security guard from the football stadium 17 years ago. And I used to hang out with some bad people then, you know. But people I, can change. But I've turned my life around or something. Yeah, yeah that's right. He actually has a more complete character arc than David Dunn, which is <laughs> incredible. Yes, that's right. No well, also, also, he cared about being in the film, unlike Bruce Willis. So let's... Uh, do we want to address the... Um, elephant in the room, which is just that Bruce Willis don't e- couldn't even be bothered to show up. What, for, no. gla- for Glass? Yeah. But, because what? it was a guy with a hood on and it, c- it could have been anyone? I don't know about this. No, no, I, no, no, no. No, I did you not see it on screen? No, oh. metaphorically, yeah. you know, like, somebody yeah. said that he just phoned that role in, didn't they? I, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't do a lot, but the problem with David Dunn as a character is that he's extremely taciturn and it works beautifully in Unbreakable because he is supposed to be an unassuming, ordinary guy with secrets and with this unease who's never fitted in and knows that he has some kind of second sight but isn't really sure. And that's beautiful in Unbreakable. But then when it comes to this film, when you've got flippin' James McAvoy acting everybody off the screen, (laughs) rightly so. You know when we talk about scenery chewing and we say it in a sort of a derogatory way, you know, that somebody's kind of overdoing it and, or, or, um, or stealing the show. Far out, James McAvoy is just extraordinary and, and comple- I, uh, I just find him endlessly watchable in this. So by comparison... And then you've got Elijah, for the, at least the first hour of the film, not uttering a word, mm-hmm. nor hardly blinking... So David Dunn, really, cool. that taciturn sort of quiet man who's gone a little bit grey, he doesn't, he isn't anything, is he? He's not really any sort of character at all. He doesn't really have much to do, no. does he? Sarah Paulson was interesting. She's there as a, for a very specific reason, to kind mm. of bring them all together. Mm-hmm. And she's great. I love Sarah Paulson, but mm. she doesn't really get to do much. Um, but yeah, I would agree. James McAvoy just, he's allowed to just do whatever he wants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's stunning. I mean, like we can't, unfortunately can't do a whole podcast on just the way he negotiates all of those characters within the Horde, but it is so impressive when the camera is on him and he manages to morph from one to, the, to a second to a third all in one shot. 
It's in, it's really astonishing. And there's so many of those scattered throughout the movie. Um, so many instances. A lot of whip pans as well to show mm. that, yeah, this is one take. Mm. I, I love the formal qualities of glass mm. in terms of the framing, in terms of the shooting. And I, I just felt like there were so many times where I was just really excited by how he was choosing to cover things. And... Which is actually something I found really missing in the happening when re-watching it. It's like, it just felt like he was just putting up the camera and shots to get what he needed to do to cover the scene and move on nine times out of ten, which is really striking when you compare it to Unbreakable and Glass, where, you know, there's so much thought given into staging things in a really interesting way, and even stuff that seems a bit lazy, like the overemphasis on security camera footage eventually comes into play in a really meaningful way, plot-wise, at the end of the film. Mm. Yeah, completely agreed. I, I felt like Glass, the the really exciting thing that um, he does with the camera, where there's always something in the foreground and something in the background, and sometimes those two things interact, mm. is that scene in the basement. The hallway. Yes, yeah, I thought yes. you were going to go there. Yeah. Amazing stuff, and just choreographed really, really well with a real sense of timing, yeah. and I absolutely agree, Doug. And the cap- uh, the happening, the happening, everything is just so flat yeah. and assuming. Yeah. Even the lighting just looks ugly and dour. And the acting is so pe- pedestrian in the happening, <laughs> and it's so just full of, oh no, what's going on? And Zoe. De Chanel with her massive eyes anyway, and those eyes just get bigger every now and then, and there is nothing going on, and you're right, there's no interesting camera work at all. It's like the camera drifts along with the film. I would love to I would love to endow M. Night Shyamalan with more thought than he probably put into this, but you could say, well, he's, um, he's evoking the wind, which of course turns out to be the killer in the end, yeah. and therefore his camera spoiler work alert. just <laughs> sort of glides, well, we've said that we'll spoiler it all, mm. but, you know, the camera work just glides along and that, that that's, it's a subtle sort of form of foreshadowing like all of the subtle foreshadowing and happening where there are like endless shots of just like tussock grass blowing in the wind and all that but I don't think so I think he was just having a really dull moment there was in terms of the acting like I also think that the way that it's been directed like you there's that scene where there's two scenes of it actually where Zoe Deschanel is doing this comedy act where she's sort of like going to pick up a phone or going to pick mm-hmm. up a pregnancy test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and your eyes are darting just, all over the place. Yeah, so. I'm like, that's terrible direction and terrible editing. Like, mm-hmm. that poor, like, poor actor, she's obviously been told to do this. And yeah. she's, she's doing her damnedest to make this goofy thing work. She, they're both miscast. I mean, Mark mm-hmm. Wahlberg never gives you a moment where you believe he actually knows how to teach science. Uh, and so we, well, we're getting on to that. We're going to talk about that. Teachers and, in the room. And, <laughs> Zo- and Zoe Deschanel is cast as a shy character who doesn't share much about herself, you know, when she's got these, you know, gigantic eyes and open face and she's like, you know, (laughs) famous as the, you know, the zany kind of person who is always out there. Mm. So it's just like, how did these two... People get put in these. I think I, I don't know that it would have worked with anybody, but it they, really they, doesn't work. So, with them. so there's an interview where um, for the, during the fighter, where um, Mark Wahlberg. Wahlberg is admitting to having a conversation with Amy Adams because she was apparently going to be in the film instead, mm. and just how much she dodged a bullet. And he's like, "All right, guys, I admit it. It was a horrible film. Mm. Yeah. Like, you can't blame me for wanting to be a teacher mm. after being crooks and cops." Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, she, she Amy Adams makes a lot more sense in that role as being the. Hmm. The, the sort of frustrated wife. But you're never really clear what their relationship issues are. Like, you can see that it's supposed to be... No, she, he wants to have a kid. She doesn't want to have yeah. a kid. 
Oh gosh, that's, I don't even remember that. Because yeah, then there's that cutaway to him being really sweet with the the little girl, um, uh, John Leguizamo's yeah. daughter, mm-hmm. and and you see, I mean, it's so on, <laughs> it's so obvious. But and then Zoe Deschanel's looking over, and you can tell that she's noticing how good he is with the kid, and blah blah. Who cares? <laughs> but, um, what yeah. about okay? What about the scene um, in the happening where this one struck up, stuck out for me this time? We haven't even s- talked about hot dogs. But <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, um, talking about hot dogs, there is a famous hot dog speech. Sarah and Doug have prepared hot dogs for us today, so we are enjoying. They have a good shape. They're full of protein. <laughs> I, th- I think that you know what's not to like. Did you bring the mustard? <laughs> Uh, one of the greatest speeches in cinema history um, for being the worst but the the end of the film of The Happening there's that scene where they're, they're sitting at the dinner table with the old woman and she um, they ask what if they ask her a question and she just randomly tells them about the room at the back of the property oh yes like there, there's no reason for her to tell them about this room she's like yeah, he's like, you got a lovely home. Yes, there's a room at the back of the property that has a at least a, a well, whispering tunnel or something like, like that. Yeah, like, yeah. There's no it's, reason apart from setting it up for the next part of the film. There's, yeah, there's no position like exposition. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, why would you use it as a justification for a beautiful home? Like, mm. honestly, watching the happening again this time reminded me a lot of the room. Uh, I was going to bring up Tommy Wiseau because <laughs> I. Do you mean that one, the room, the room that Tommy Wiseau? Yeah, Tommy yeah. Wiseau. Room. Oh, yeah. right. There's, I think there's something really similar about the fact that M. Night Shyamalan and Tommy Wiseau have no idea about the disconnect between their sense of humor and the audience's sense of humor. And you see this all over the place. Like in the film Devil, which he wrote but didn't direct, there's a scene where um, this guy, to prove that the place is haunted, is dropping toast with peanut butter on the ground, and it keeps landing on the peanut butter side. And, and you know, there's there's the you know lines about seeing eye in your lemon drink, and, and you kind of laugh at stuff. And I think in Glass, like, it almost felt like he had somebody say, okay, no, this kind of works as humor, this kind of doesn't. Like, there aren't, as, there aren't as many clangers dialogue-wise in Glass. Like, even that stuff where the security guard's talking about, like, what the um, what the guy in front should be, you know, yeah, as, yeah. as nutritional stuff. Just fe- That feels like kind of, it's a funny idea, but it's not phrased in a really painful, quotable no. way mm-hmm. on, like, these hot dog lines and things <laughs> like that. And I think that line where... He, um, that's key is when Elijah's talking to the nine-year-old version of um, James McAvoy. He's like, "What's so super about that?" He's like, "You get to be nine forever." That's a, you know perfect thing. And I think that's how part of the M Night Shyamalan thing is he is like a nine-year-old in a lot of ways in in both that kind of what would be the most awesome thing if you were nine? This twist, you know. <laughs> William, what were your thoughts about the the? Similarities with the room, but the dialogue, uh, the the way it's shot, but many of the dialogue, some mm. of it is is really clunky in a way that feels unnatural with the and happening. human and ha- the the happening. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of talk of John Leguizamo being, hey, you're my best friend, and as a best friend, I'm gonna <laughs> yeah. tell you this. Like, who talks like yeah. that? Yeah. We, we, we you're talk- my best friend. Yeah. <laughs> you're my friend, Mark. Uh, <laughs> th- th- we've talked about this online, but but the fact that um, uh, w- w- what's his name, Alan Ruck, mm. is briefly in the film as the principal, I guess, and he, he tells the as you say, Jeremy, the world's weirdest like staff meeting. Uh, guys, <laughs> I've just talked to the head of schools. Like, what? what's what? the head of schools? <laughs> 
So, you know, listeners, regular listeners will know, you've got three teachers in the room right now. The first point for me was, why are all the teachers leaving the kids alone in the classroom? <laughs> no, just send the kids home. <laughs> but you never leave kids alone in a classroom and expect that that's going to work out okay. But and then Especially abs- in the cell phone era, they're all like looking, what's going on? Exactly. So then there's this absurdity of this horrible little meeting. Do you notice how Mark Wahlberg's always at the back of the meetings as well? Elliot's always at the back. He's and that his kind place of teacher. is always going, I think there might be more to this than <laughs> train stop. Oh my God the train stop where there's the five guys sitting along and the none of them are talking. Guys. Yeah, uh, the people who run the train where they stop in that <laughs> yeah. little village. And he just keeps asking them questions and he kept giving, we're not going any further. Yeah. Where oh, are we? And there's literally a sign. Right? I was like, and I think Mark Wahlberg even calls attention to the idiocy of like, why do I have to ask you single questions? So, 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 that, that reminded me exactly of the scene from, uh, from the Darjeeling Limited. That, that joke of, wait, the train's lost? How can the train be lost? <laughs> but then he goes, does anybody even know where that is? Like, just silly quotes yeah, like where that. are we? Filibert or yeah, whatever. Filbert, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But then yeah. also the logic of, of the, 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 logic, the logic that they stopped is that we can't get hold of anyone. Like, why would you stop a anyone. train? Anyone. Why would you stop a train? Just keep going and you might get there and see what the problem is. Like, what, what's... Why would you I, stop? I think... So, coming back to M. Night and his career, this, the happening, right, is post The Sixth Sense, which I don't care who you are, was a genius move, a genius film. Um, and then, what was the one that came straight after? Unbreakable. It was Unbreakable, yeah, which is fantastic. Which actually, yeah. and I loved it far more on this th- recent third viewing, very clever, and a really, actually a really good twist at the end, blah, blah, blah. And then what the heck? It was like... Signs. Sure, but he, so he's writing signs, he's thinking about it, he's coming up with concepts. It's, the happening for me is such a weak concept, and it's so, so poorly executed. And then I'm so relieved that um, Split, and whatever one might think about Split, um, uh, and, and of course Glass. And, and The Visit as well. I think that was his, his big comeback, right? Well, so they're all really, um, when I say well-written, they're, they're really thought through. He's got strong ideas, and he's trying to make a point, you know? And I'm just so relieved that he comes back to that, even if some of the execution doesn't always work. But he's, he's also known for lifting B-grade tropes into a kind of A-grade zone, or at least that's what it was with the previous films. And I think that he's just become very B-C-grade, and Here's yeah. A, yeah, here's a question, because when Unbreakable starts, it starts with this card that explains what comic books mm. are. It's this really bizarre <laughs> card, like, 37,852 comic books are published each year, a comic book consi- and all this stuff. And at the time, you almost had to make special pleading that a comic book could be con- taken as seriously as a because movie. Because this was, what, 2000? 2000. Yeah. Right, and so we weren't yet inundated mm. with Marvel and DC yeah. and we weren't as au fait with them as, as source material and as genres right? and, and we weren't like oh can a superhero be taken seriously on screen and now we're like please stop taking them seriously on screen let's have yeah. some fun let's not have people looking at each other in the dark for two and a half hours and screaming Martha uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and so I'm really curious what you guys think in terms of where Glass fits into that and particularly, and this is a big spoiler, there's a huge foreshadowing towards this Osaka building um, where this big standoff at the end is supposed to take place. And instead it takes place in the most bland possible uh, car park. park. But also there's a big magazine that says the architectural marvel. And 
I'm just like, is this just some really esoteric takedown of contemporary superhero movies or just Shyamalan? Do you mean the fact laugh? that he dangles for us, they're going to have their, 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 their standoff there, and then we don't? Yeah, and, well, and also the fact that he's used the Marvel brand name sure, sure, very sure. deliberately on that magazine to sure. signpost, like, well, that's where their movie would end, but ours ends here, and we eventually learn this is part of Elijah Glass's plot somehow in yeah. ways that don't really seem that plausible. I have thoughts about why. Do you guys have thoughts? Well, I, I love it. Yeah, I like yeah. it as well. Yeah, when, when they uh, first introduced the idea of this is where our, our final showdown is going to be, mm. what, what they call it, it's like the limited issue showdown. Or limited something. edition. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, the thing I had in my head sitting in the cinema was like, this movie... It cost what, like 10, 20 million? They're not going to have the budget to do oh, that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, it's the big rug pull. And like, oh, th- this this makes so much more sense, and I like it so much more for it. Yes. Yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed that that change. I mean, in terms of it being a commentary where it sits in terms of the world of superhero films, I mean, I'll give it. I'll give it that. You know, it's it's the ending of the film is is as a society that. It is convincing superheroes that they're not super. Is that that's what it was, right? Yeah, well, I, th- I feel that it is a bit that, and also the fact that that really, I, I mean, surely all of that talk that Sarah Paulson is doing relentlessly, which I did find interesting, luckily, but I'm sure others didn't, is about the fact that they're effectively ordinary guys. And her whole argument is, until we find out at the end that she has other thoughts, her whole argument is, guys, don't you think that maybe you're just ordinary people who think that they have superpowers? And the whole thing, I mean, Unbreakable was all about you're an ordinary guy who has a moral obligation to go off and do this stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. So actually, the fact that they, like ordinary guys, don't fight at the top of the Osaka Tower in front of cameras from around the world, they're going to do it in a car park in front of CCTV and that's as much as we can get um, absolutely makes sense and you're right it was orchestrated by Elijah Glass because of then of course the big Security kicker at the end yeah. is that he's had it all live streaming so that the world will know here are some ordinary people who aren't so ordinary which means that we can all be extraordinary uh, if we can just figure out what our sort of superpower is blah 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 which is always about confronting one's internal trauma and you see this in six sign six sense oh crossover <laughs> and you see it in signs though where it's like you have these people that have been selected by fate that have had some horrible trauma and for some reason Shyamalan keeps coming back to this and I don't know what want to know what happened to him when he was 9 but this trauma that is like is the thing that enables them to have these amazing abilities mm. and there's there's something about like if you face your greatest fear then you can become the sh- you can exceed your imagined potential mm. or whatever you might say and I, I I spent a lot of time tr- with Glass trying to think about what it, where is he going politically with this because the happening is like very textually his nine eleven movie. It's so and and we live in a very what fraught time politically. I and think also, it's fair it's to also say. a global warming film. It is a, yeah, yeah, it's his nine eleven film. It's his global warming film. So it can be both at once. And so maybe with like uh, Glass, you have like kind of the Bilderberg Group thing where it's kind of like you have this pan down from the Osaka building to this building covered with flags and Sarah Paulson's group of people are like, we've suppressed people from imagining their full potential. Let's go to another city and do it again. <laughs> Speech happens. And then, but you also have kind of Elijah Glass's increasingly crazy conspiracy theory that he was destined to create a superhero 
17 years ago and the twist we haven't spoiled yet, but which I laughed out loud with glee when it happened, which I think he meant us to, didn't he? I mean, it just kind of like, that's such an audacious twist to be like, you haven't told him about the train. <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoyed that twist. I yeah. it was fun. I, 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 didn't, how, I didn't see it coming. Not yeah. Neither, but how it was done, how they, they kind of merged oh, I new footage to with old footage. I love that. Wow. I, I got tingles that. down my spine. On a more of storytelling note, I, I was very impressed as well how he wove together the three supporting characters, you know, the, the, the mother, the um, girl from Split, and the son. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. Which, by the way, he's the same actor. Yeah, I know. Yes, yes. Um, Clark, yeah. And, but I just really, I thought, man, when I was watching it, when I was just in the sort of the hour or half an hour into it or whatever mm-hmm. it was, I thought, there's a lot of layers of, sort yeah. of threads being woven, and mm-hmm. I didn't feel frustrated or I didn't feel like it was poorly done. I thought, oh, they're doing a pretty good job. Some, I of, us, some of us a little bit forced. and mm-hmm. But I thought, you know, to have the three of those characters at the end was quite... I thought it good for me, yeah, and for me, because I love callbacks, and um, I'm very easy to please in a lot of ways. And so for me, it was thrilling to, as you say, William, to have the the new footage suddenly sort of segue into the old, so really seamlessly, uh, and and particularly to have Spencer Treat Clark back as the son, mm-hmm. and the continuity of that. And even though the girl from Split, Casey, is, is I, more yeah. more recent, Anya Thingy Joy. What's her name? Taylor Anya Taylor-Joy. Taylor Joy. Um, even though she's more recent, so it felt less sort of thrilling and surprising. You've still got Elijah's mom. And I, yeah, I, I agree. I thought that it was woven together really nicely. It ends really kind of dumb that the three of them are kind of banding together because they're all like relatives of these three heroes or these three main characters. But, but I would forgive it quite a lot. And the production design is so key in that. And that's one element where Glass really stands above the happening. And I, I noticed a lot because you have um, the colors coded for each of the characters. You know, James McAvoy's characters in orange, David's is in green, and uh, Elijah Glass is purple. And when they're in the asylum, they're in these really faded pastel versions of them. And their um, uh, family slash friend analogs for them are also often wearing related colors as well. And so I think that's part of what brings that all together. And then you have Sarah Paulson, who is always wearing the color of the institution to the point where there's a scene where there's like a blue hallway with a gray floor and she's wearing a dress that goes from blue to gray in that really incredibly striking pink room. You know, no, I love and, and that that's, And that's one reason I think the movie, actually, I felt like they were cheaping out at the end. I hadn't thought about that it was, I didn't know that anything about the budget going in. And I felt like it was more expensive than it was because those simple decisions of buying a can of paint and getting everyone to wear the same color adds so much mm. to that. Um, I was blown away when I read the budget afterwards as twenty million, yeah. which right. is a nothing. That's such a small budget. Yeah, but um, location-wise, if you think about it, it pretty much all happens in one place. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. You know, I mean, you can do a warehouse anywhere, and then you've got a, an institution. Sure, but in 2000, yeah. you couldn't get Bruce Willis to show up to brush his teeth for more than less than $20 <laughs> yeah. million. So that sure. tells you but, something, too. But, I mean, and also, I'm, I will just say, um, so that Bruce forgives me when he inevitably listens to this podcast, <laughs> um, having, having accused him of not really acting very much earlier, I, I, I did feel a thrill when he, you know, when he turns and you see his lovely grey whiskers, and, and, and I did feel like, oh, it's David. It felt really nice yeah. to be yeah. back. In a strange sort of way, so I think that it's got all that going for it. In the happening, there are many actors, many extra actors, (laughs) many of them. Did I say there's a lot of them Mm. uh, who just have these inane comments 
stupid things to show people. Like, why would you show? Why would you send somebody a horrific video of somebody's arm being ripped off by a lion? Okay. <laughs> oh my I can, I can get that. Right? I can get that right. Mm-hmm. But then you've sent it to your sister, and then you're like, "Oh my god, look at this!" <laughs> I mean. What kind of terrorists are these? Mm. <laughs> um, also, this is after the train people have not been able to get in touch with anybody. Yeah. Everything's shut down, but we can totally like upload videos to YouTube that are outtakes from the Black Knight scene from Monty Python. I think, <laughs> I think unintentionally you raise, um, you raise a point that really bothered me about the happening. And while I was watching it, because this was my first and only, it will be my only time of watching <laughs> the happening. Um, and I was really struck by how completely... Um, distasteful and by today's standards totally inappropriate it was and again I acknowledge that because we're teachers we're probably a little more sensitive to to never mind teachable texts but certainly things around suicide and whatnot yeah but um, it's a really distasteful idea it's clever but do I want to see a film about it uh, and don't get me wrong, for me it isn't a triggering thing or anything like that at all. It just seemed so unsavory. Um, I mean, we watched that guy get smushed by the lawnmower, and in a way you're like, holy crap, he went there! And in a way you're like, holy crap, he went there? Yeah. You know? And also, but, but even from And a, the hangings? Yeah. And the car crash? I feel really, I feel the, um, the, 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 the way they dealt with abuse and split was really problematic with the the main character like mm-hmm. and they left her in this they kind of tried to solve it solve it in um glass but he deals with really dodgy issues in a way that's not very not very well deep put together mental illness as well and yeah basically every single one of these movies well yeah. so that's yeah. something that i was i wanted to touch on because um i had i had got a bit sort of up in arms about um halloween it wasn't really halloween's fault there have been so many films where baddies are um in a mental institution and uh, and he usually treated uh, with no sympathy whatsoever, just as um, horrific creatures, mm. um, which I find mm-hmm. very, very, um, I find really significantly uh, wrong yeah. and distasteful. Now, Split was a little bit problematic in that regard because it left us with this notion of somebody who is experiencing and suffering from multiple personality disorder, uh, and 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 one of his personalities morphs into this homicidal beast, which is terrible. That's so unfair. Then I do feel, actually, that in Glass, um, Shyamalan addresses that in actually quite a sympathetic way. And I really enjoyed the interactions between Casey and the Kevin character um, and the empathy that was shown and the empathy, actually, from Sarah Paulson's psychiatrist in a lot of ways, talking about the fact that trauma can, can um, pr- produce pe- um, cause people to, to produce many personalities in order to cope, etc., etc., etc. And that ultimately, they, she encourages... Well, actually, at the beginning, doesn't she? She encourages Casey to treat the Horde, and particularly Kevin, with empathy and with love in order to stop the the carnage from happening Mm -hmm. Uh, that was a really nice and important message and i don't know how much it might have got missed by the the average viewer amongst everything else well i think i think shyamalan's split so to speak is he's like one third like rod serling twilight zone one third like hallmark card kind of sentimentality like love can fix multiple personality disorders you know just believe in yourself and you can do everything and then one third almost Eli Roth or something Mm. where he has these instincts and he has has what I would actually say is almost an uncanny gift 
for really unsettling moments. Mm, you know, these, mm. And he doesn't always stage them well. Mm. But um, there was part of me that came out of glass. And, you know, obviously just the very nature of the glass character whose legs are so breakable. And you think yeah. of that horrific scene in Unbreakable where he falls down the subway the stairs. stairs. And, and, you know, you wonder if someday he's going to go full hostile and just make a movie that revels in that. But you, you, I remember feeling this tension in Split about, like, He's made this real exploitation scenario about these three women locked up in this room by this crazy guy. But he's not quite an exploitation filmmaker. So he doesn't not, quite go there. Yeah, and, 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 and he's not tasteful enough to handle it in a classy way. And he's not tasteless enough to just embrace... <laughs> The, the darkness of it and be like, okay, this is just going to be a messed up movie for people who like messed up movies. It's mm, this mm. weird jumbling mix. And I find that really fascinating about his stuff. And I um, don't think he's ever going to resolve it. And you read his Twitter feed, actually, and he, which I started following a couple of years ago. He is so lovely. He is so positive. <laughs> and I started following him like when his movies were flopping left and right. I think probably during After Earth or The Last Airbender somewhere in there, I discovered him. I'm like, this is going to be good for some schadenfreude or something. And I just like, he's just always like, so cheery. Mm-mm. I think what you're saying I really appreciate, which is that he, he it's, all of these pieces, they just either land or they don't. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, like I think some of the best parts about his films have also been some of the worst parts about his other films. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I do want to talk to William about a science teacher who loves mood rings and, <laughs> and also professors to say, we will just never really know with something. So just give up uh, and don't even bother trying. It's just a theory, bro. It's That's literally science. Science <laughs> is oh, theories. I was that, so angry. It makes me so... Well, that's one of the very first things you teach. You know, the theory does not mean that it's it's gobbledygook. Mm. Um, I mean, the science teacher stuff, the teacher stuff overall. Holy cow, you guys! I know it's it's not a, a big part of the movie, mm. but it's <laughs> it is the opening. Mm. I, I have some notes written down. Oh yeah, um, here we go. Here we go. Okay, so first note is Dark Lord. When he undermines the, the vice principal, vice principal comes in, students are, you know, with the teacher, the teacher's like, ooh, it's the Dark Lord. Oh, yeah. Your ass is grass, my friend. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's like, she's like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Also, he, he flat out, like, hits on a student. Your face is perfect. What? To, whoa, to whoa, whoa, a young whoa, man. man. And I get where he's coming from. I get the point he's trying to make, but you wouldn't say that. Plus, that boy's face was not perfect. But anyway, yeah. Well, I just think the irony of Marky Mark having that, that you know, he's, he's like looked In the same. Years, he's like looked you know. the same pretty much for 20, 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, your face is going to change. I'm like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> but all the talk about the bees, like, what is he on about? It's, it's just ridiculous. Um, and I. I guess I blame most of this on the writing. It's just, mm. it's really poor writing. Mm. Um, normal people don't talk like this. Teachers don't talk like this. Mm. W- what's his face? Uh, John Leguizamo, to prove or to make the audience remember that he's a math teacher, he has that ridiculous scene where he's asking the lady math problems. <laughs> and she she has the most insane answers. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, you give somebody a, million, a penny yeah. the first day. It's, it's 30. Yeah. It's 30. It's, no, yeah, no, it's a it's hundred. It's two hundred more. It's two hundred more. Even you yeah. would have 
ten million dollars. Uh, while he's looking up at the slit in the ceiling. Why? Why, why doesn't he just block? <laughs> why doesn't he block it? That's teacher. Put a hand up. No, that's teacher. Yeah. Um, the, the scene where Marky Mark is talking to the plant, and to make it extra ominous, someone has a fan behind the camera, so the plant's like waving. <laughs> oh, the, I will. I, I will give it. So you finish your notes. Uh, I, I, oh no, he's got a more. Oh, you go, you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I. I, I do agree that the, the hanging scene was quite distasteful. Yeah. But this time watching it, I was just thinking, how the heck did that happen? The, the, okay, the science behind this movie, it has some credibility. I, I, I like the idea of, yeah, we have this, this instinct, right, that is self-preservation that mm. somehow is turned off through some chemical means. Yes. Okay, that, that's a it's really reversed. cool idea. It's reversed. It's reversed, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a really, really cool idea. Mm. But... These people go to su- such creative lengths to kill themselves. Mm. Think about it. So how 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 do the logistics of the hanging scene work? Mm. First, you got to find a hose, right? There's no hoses. Okay, we got to find a hose. Mm. There's a tree. I- I'm going to try scale this tree, which is not an easy feat. Mm. I'm going to tie the hose on the tree, tie a noose around the hose, <laughs> put my head through the noose, hop off from the tree, which on which I'm balancing on. That, that'll work. No, but that, William, do it. I think you're... No, and, and I'm not being facetious for once. I think that the whole point of that is that if our human instinct is switched the other way, we will go to whatever lengths it takes. And I think that was the point that he was making. Do you know what I mean? So those sorts of, you know, the not objections that you make as, as such as, as, as sort of barriers, they're not there. That's the point. I think that the it is... That's how driven human nature is, either to stay alive or to die. I think that might account for that. You know what I mean? One That's my, what I'd argue. One, one, of the scariest, one of the scariest moments in, in uh, The Sixth Sense for me as a young person was the scene where Haley Joel Osment looks up down at the school corridor and there's all the people hanging down the corridor. It's very scary. Mm. But I agree with you. I don't know how they did that. And it doesn't really work in the happening. How scary is the ending where you're like, but what about Euro-Itchy and Scratchy Land? <laughs> oh. <laughs> It's so dumb. Oh my gosh, this is such a dumb movie. Are you still talking about the happening? Yeah. yeah. Right. But I think I think the thing is that we're you can't overlook how fun it is, and it makes me sad to know that my wife will never watch it again. <laughs> I, I got in trouble when I saw it in the theater because I went with my friend Steve and about halfway through we're, we went from, is this meant to be taken seriously? I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. And we just couldn't stop laughing. And the fellow sitting behind us got very mad at us for not, you know, for mocking the movie. And I'm like, okay. I saw, <laughs> I saw it with my cousin. I feel vindicated that we're sitting here knowing that, you know. I saw it with my cousin. Um, and it's a cousin that uh, her and I, we, we, she's very good friends. But we don't really hang out that much. For whatever reason, we were going to see this film together. And nobody else was in the cinema, so we were able to just laugh out loud and, and the sort whole of commentate time. as yeah, you went. It yeah, was such, it was one of the coolest experiences <laughs> that with that film. So, honest question to everyone around the table: yeah. Do you think that the happening is intentionally meant to evoke like B movie madness? I, I think it's definitely it's meant so to be weird. a B movie Twilight Zone kind of movie by somebody who, in a perverse way, is almost too talented to make a really traditionally bad movie and and gets somehow got like good looking photography and movie stars and stuff and so then it becomes a bloated mess I don't mm-hmm. actually I don't but I do think it's a strange anomaly in an otherwise as I keep saying really thought about career 
um, the village and all that, you know, whether things worked or not, he really thought it through and people took it seriously. And I hate to say it, but I feel as though Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel and all those damned extras um, <laughs> are taking it seriously. So I don't think there is a twinkle in M. Night's eye when he's making the happening. And I think the science that is so BS, as you say, but I mean, I think these are ideas that he really wanted to get out there. And I just feel that it was poorly executed. But I can't account for why, in a career, as I say, of other films with strong ideas that have better executions. We should point out that you haven't watched The Last Airbender or After Earth. Heck no! So, um, I, but, but, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen After Earth and I tried watching The Last Airbender and I could not. The Last Airbender broke my heart. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, this is also a movie where like a kid literally gets shot in the head and Mark Wahlberg leans over him and says, Every Everything's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and I feel like there's that saying that you make a movie three times, once when you write it, once when you direct it, and once when you edit it. And I can see, like, Shyamalan writing something like that either as a toss-off or kind of like, that's what you do in B-movies, and writing it in sort of a B-movie spirit. And then you get there and you have these really committed, bizarre performances and strong decisions that have been made and actors who are really going for it. And it's like... I don't know how to make this work. I guess we'll just shoot it, and that's what he's done, and we move yeah, on. Yeah, that's weird. I think yeah. I don't. I don't think it's intentional. Yeah. I think it's very much a mistake. How bad it is. <laughs> okay. But what I will say is one of the, what I will say is one of the key scenes that really impressed me watching this again, or at least key tensions, is that scene you're talking about, Doug, where it sets up the tree as being the threat in the scene. The girl mm. swinging on the tree, mm. and it's all filmed with a creaking branch, and, yeah. and mm. so that when the when the rifle comes out of the house. Mm. I mean, it's so stupid. Of course, it's But yeah. you're sort of what blindsided by? Yeah, it. I think it's a quite a good setup for a shock. Um, they're banging on these people's doors, and those yeah. two kids get killed. And but, but but I will say, when Spencer Breslin gets shot, that that is shocking. That that is legitimately yeah. shocking. Mm. Uh, when his friend gets shot, it's it has to be comedic, right? Because yeah. you see the 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 rifle like slowly go yeah. towards his head, and Marky Mark's like lunges. <laughs> What I will say about the film as well is that the kind of de-escalation of the film and how, by design, they have to be in smaller and smaller groups until they eventually they so they start in Philadelphia, I think, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, um, and then they end up in there. Like it is Just quite a cool, it's a quite park. a cool setup. Like I feel like the the, the the structure of this film works, and or at least it should work. With it going into this old, like ending up in some crazy old lady's house is quite a cool idea, but then it just never really executes it in any there, way. That's there's good. this theme that, and you kind of allude to it in that scene where there's is the real threat man, and it's something that goes back to actually Night of the Living Dead, and I'm sure well before that. But you mm. think about that where it's like, oh, there's this horrible threat, but the real threats within, and you kind of there's sort of stabs at that near the end where the old lady's like, "You're going to steal my things! I'm going to yeah. shoot you!" And then like it just kind of lies there on the floor kind of like somebody holding up a card saying insert theme here yeah or like a like a doll in a bed (laughs) but then then what you just said Doug though ties in absolutely to what you mentioned before about um, Shyamalan's sort of um, preoccupation with uh, the the inner pain the trauma and what that produces in all of us Mm. and that can be none so manifested as in the hordes many many personalities which we all know and acknowledge are based uh, come out of trauma 
So um, that does seem to be absolutely his overriding theme through everything. And in The Happening, it is that the only people that survive are the ones who at love conquer all. And they go outside. And it's left ambiguous, I think, as to exactly if their love has allowed them to survive the wind or if the wind ended right before them. Well, they say, or, no, they say, I guess the wind stopped before we came outside. Yeah, we know, we, we get it. We'll never we're truly alive. understand it. It is a phenomenon that we just can't understand because we don't really know. So that line yeah. is so badly ADR'd. <laughs> that line is clearly inserted after a test screening. Mm. I think clearly Shyamalan meant it to be ambiguous as to whether um, them overcoming their differences and meeting was enough to bring them to overpower it or whether the wind had ended it. I think it was meant to be ambiguous and then it's like, nah. Thank you for listening to another episode of Cinema in Context. If you enjoyed our podcast, then please share it with your film-loving friends. You can listen to Cinema in Context through SoundCloud or through Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter, which are great places to let us know what you think of this episode or give us suggestions for future films to discuss or compare. Look out for our next episode in a month's time. And until then, kakite anō.